Hi friends, Brad here, the lead pastor of a new church called The Table. This podcast is a short insight to what we do every week, and we think that long, drawn-out messages lose meaning. So over the course of this podcast, you'll find questions that we pose to our people that they'll discuss in real time. And so we would love for you to find time to reflect on these questions as well. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and check us out at thetablejoliet.org. So this morning, uh, as we said, we're starting a new series called The Art of the Heart. It's February. I don't know if you know this, Valentine's Day is coming up. And so we wanted to do a series on relationships. And so this is the point where some of you are like, I'm not in a relationship. Uh, yes, you are. If you have parents, if you have siblings, if you have coworkers or friends, you have relationships and you have people that are messy. And so the next four weeks, we're going to talk about relationships. And of course, as I told you last week, they knew that I'm not qualified. And so we've invited some really smart people. In fact, Elizabeth, who's going to come up at this moment, uh, she is working on finishing a book called Navigating Relationships. And it's uh, The Best Adventures of Your 20s, which I'm so excited to read this because I feel like I'm 20, even though I'm almost 40. Uh, so I, I think I should read it. It'll be good. She's also the founder of Story Farmers. And what she does is she goes in and she essentially helps churches and people find their faith and their story and sort of builds them up and sets a foundation. And so she's got a PhD, like I said, she's more qualified than I am. She's got a PhD, so we're gonna call her Dr. Reverend this morning. Would you welcome Elizabeth Poost this morning? Oh, so I'm all about rooting for the underdog. And the Chiefs haven't won the Super Bowl since 1969. They've been waiting a long time. This could be it. I don't know. Um, but I come from a family who's pretty non-athletic. We're not very sporty at all. We have absolutely no athletic ability. And we're not, we don't pretend about it. But we do love, <laughs> but we do love live sporting events because of the crowd and the ways in which groups of people gather together. And so uh, my sister had always wanted to go to a professional soccer game and buy a scarf. That's really why she wanted to go. She loves all things international. She even lives in Europe now. But earlier on, she's like, I want to go to a true football game because that's what soccer is called the rest of the worldwide is football. And so I said, sure, Amanda, I will go with you. And so she bought the tickets and we got in the car and we drove and to Allstate Arena and we got there and it was so great because it was going to be inside. We didn't have to go outside for the soccer game. And so we go into the arena and we're found our, the, the section that we're in and go to our seats and we step inside the actual arena and my sister freezes and her mouth drops open as she discovers that she had purchased tickets to an arena football game. Like actual football, American football. And so at that moment, she's like, oh, we can just go now. I can't even buy a scarf. <laughs> and, and I'm like, no, no, we can stay. This will be great. So we learned all kinds of new jargon, like move those chains and other fascinating things. And then, <laughs> but then the best part of the day 
was during halftime. Now, the halftime was right before Easter, and so they decided to do an Easter egg hunt. And so what they did is they took half of the field and they filled it with all kinds of candy and Easter eggs and they let any kids, arena football fan children, to come down to the floor. And they had full Easter bunny, I mean with the big head and everything, and the cheerleaders kind of holding the children back. And then all of a sudden one just makes a break for it before anyone said go. And the rest of the children just followed in suit. And these are arena football children. They are like running through the crowd like linebackers, knocking people over. And it's bedlam everywhere. The carnage was crazy. These kids are just running through other people. One kid ran over the Easter Bunny, knocked him over. Just like <laughs> It was crazy. And I mean, they're collecting candy like you wouldn't believe. And their parents are cheering from the crowd, get him, Johnny! You know, they're just, it's intense. And there's, there's like, blood and 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 you cannot unsee what i saw that day it was just carnage the story did not play out like we thought it would amanda did not make it to that soccer game and get a scarf what we got we can't unsee and so this is what happens in life isn't it those relationships that we have we would have never been in that situation if it wasn't for the relationship with the other person and so <laughs> we still laugh about that day but there are so many other times where we enter into these relationships and we enter in and realize where have i found myself what is going on here those relationships in our lives, if we were to sit around a table and talk about the different parts of those relationships, some of the things we might find, conflict, laughter, frustration, eye-rolling, miscommunication, sighing, anger, ill-placed words, the dream of redos, challenging personalities that don't mesh, or ones that click instantly. Those challenging dynamics of third parties, like meddling in-laws, or ex-spouses, or moody teenagers. <laughs> family, those people who you are not related to but are closer than your actual family. Promises that have been broken, hurt, absence, sacrifice, selfless serving, timely help, jealousy, envy, insecurities, unwavering confidence that's bigger than yours. And they, people who believe in you even when you don't. Relationships that have lies and cover-ups and full and complete truth, the kind that's unvarnished and real. Fear, assumptions, hope unswavering. Silence. Grief. Disappointment. 
unrelentless prayers on your behalf, unmet expectations, competing goals, a shared vision, and a dream that won't die. Forgiveness, loss, grace, enabling, mercy. Relationships are hard, and relationships are complicated mostly because <laughs> we're a part of them. <laughs> and things get messy. And the challenging thing about relationships is we're always stepping into a story that's already in motion. The story is already happening, and we're stepping into it. And we've got a story over here of our life, and we've got a story over here of another person's life. And sometimes those stories diverge, and sometimes they come together, and there's this kind of swirling that takes place, almost like a dance. And there's this navigation that we have to figure out how to move through, because these relationships aren't easy. They're complicated. They're messy. I think about some conversations that I had just this week. One of my very best friends, whose 40th birthday we went on an epic trip to celebrate. We're sitting across the table talking about life and how it's not playing out the way we thought it would. At 40, she's not married and she doesn't have kids. And she keeps getting set up by odd people. <sighs> and then I have two other really good friends that are in their late 30s, early 40s, who are figuring out, as a couple, decision-making about radiation that goes along with cancer. And what goes into the context of with their kids that she homeschools, and how does that look, and what do we do? Those relationships get complicated. And yet, you know, that coworker that you have whose marriage is messy and the divorce is going to be even messier. Are there any other kind but the messy ones? Those are the types of stories that kind of swirl together and meld into ours. And we find ourselves standing in it and we go, this is not the story I signed up for. This is the story of our person today that we're going to learn about in the Bible. Her name is Hagar, and she steps into a story already in motion. Our story picks up in Genesis 15, and in Genesis 15, we find Abram, soon to be called Abraham, talking to God. And God is promising what is going to happen for him. And don't be afraid, Abraham. I'm your shield. Your reward will be grand. Abraham clears his throat and says to God, <clears throat> do you remember that uh, uh, I'm childless? Like, we don't have any kids. He says it three different ways and three different times to God in the midst of that conversation, just in case he's forgotten that this promise that you want me to, like, live into, there's nothing happening in that area, God. And <laughs> did you catch that, God? My heir is going to be my servant because I don't have any kids. And God brings him out, outside, into this wide open space. 
And he says, look up at the sky. Count the stars. Can you count them? <laughs> How many are there? So shall your offspring be. <laughs> okay, God. I'm 76 years old, but if that's what you say, okay. So the story continues. There's this beautiful covenant that happens. Promises are made by Abram and by God. And there's this covenant celebration that happens. There's lots of blood, lots of promising uh, <laughs> animals cut in half. Fire comes and walks through, symbolizing God saying, I am making this promise to you. Ten years pass. Dust is forming on the top of that promise. Nothing has happened. You begin to start asking questions. Sarah, Abram's husband, says, like, maybe he needs someone else besides me. Nothing's happening here. I'm not producing an heir for him. Maybe I'm not the one he needs. Abram says, have you forgotten, God? Did we do something wrong? Did something happen? But we're here in the midst of this radio silence with God. And so enter Hagar. Hagar is the Egyptian maidservant of Abram and Sarah. That means that she's come from a different land and she's been the maidservant now for a while with Sarah and she's seen this whole story play out. How it's not happening and it's not working and now they're not having kids. And so all of a sudden, Hagar is moved from the sidelines and in to the front. And they look at her and essentially say, you look like a good sturdy girl. You can be the one to carry the air. And so Hagar becomes pregnant with Abraham's child. And something happens. Relationships get more complicated. It says in Genesis 16, it says, he slept with Hagar, she conceived, and when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. <laughs> then Sarai says to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. This is your fault. <laughs> <laughs> Abram, this is your fault. <laughs> Hagar despises me, and I'm stuck in the middle of this. This is your fault. <laughs> and then it says this. It says, <laughs> I put my servant in your arms, and now she's pregnant, and she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abraham says. I'm not having anything to do with that. And, <laughs> right, thanks, man. All right, so Abraham said, do whatever you think is best. You know, just do whatever you think. And so then it says, <laughs> it says, then Sarai mistreated Hagar, and so she fled from her. So mistreated there, the word is the same word used as the Israelites in bondage the chapter before. It's the same word in Hebrew. And so you wonder what happened. Was she some sort of constrained? Was she just micromanaged because this is going to be the heir and she's going to do exactly what Sarai says? 
What happened in the midst of that relationship as Hagar moved from slave to additional wife? And that relationship just fell apart, and Hagar escaped. She ran. It says, <laughs> it says, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that was beside the road to Shur. So she waddle runs out of there because she's pregnant in the desert, which means she's super puffy. And, and she, <laughs> she leaves. Hagar, Hagar is there next to the spring. I and mean, if you're going to run away, next to a spring is a great place. There's water. There'd be a shade probably in the midst of that. And she runs away to this place. Next to the road, not very much a hidden place, but still, nonetheless. And then it says this. It says, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai. He knows her name. He also reminds her that she's the servant of Sarai. You know, don't say that name. <laughs> I'm running away from her. But the fascinating thing to me is, this is a spot in the Bible that doesn't say, don't be afraid. He didn't say, oh, you know, here's this angel appearing before her, and she doesn't freak out. Now, if I was running away from God and everything that I was supposed to do, I wouldn't be expecting him to find me and an angel to call me by name. And here is the angel of God calling her by name. He knows her. Hagar's name means reward, my reward. And so he knows her by name, and then he asks her this question. He says, where have you come from? He didn't say, what are you doing? What are you thinking? He said, where have you come from? Now, that's a complicated question. This isn't just one place that she's come from. Surely she's come right from Sarah, running away. But where did she come from? She came from Egypt. She was a slave from Egypt. The fact that she was Sarai's handmaiden meant that she was someone super important. She had education, she was able to read, she was able to do many things if she was the handmaiden of Sarai. Would have been her equal, if not someone superior to Sarai. She left her family, who she'll never see again, if they're even still alive. She left being respected and being important and having servants of her own. Where did you come from? And she came from, and when we're asked that question, we instantly go to the things that are hard. We instantly go to where we've been, where we've been disrespected and misunderstood and dissed in every way possible. I'm not going back there. I ran away from there. Nuh-uh. No. I'm running away is her only answer. She has found herself in the desert. What has driven you to the desert? 
Where are the places in life and those relationships that you've had that are not the way the story was supposed to play out? And you find yourselves in these relationships saying, ah, I am running away from that. This is your fault. There is distance here, and I, I'm not uh-uh, going back. So today I want to encourage you to think about this question. This is an opportunity for you as a table group to maybe have a conversation about where are those, who are those relationships that have helped found you in the desert, in the past or in your present. Or maybe today you'd like to text somebody to tell them about that or to take notes. But I just encourage you to take one step beyond where you normally go. Be a little bit more vulnerable. Take a little bit more risk. Just one step. What are those relationships that have found you in the desert? Overwhelmed and in the desert. Hagar finds herself there, and God finds her in the desert. Where have you come from? was the first question. Where are you going? was the second. Hagar had one answer. I'm running away. <laughs> but God had a different response. She was so focused on where she had been that there was no vision of where she was going, but not back there. I'm not. <laughs> I'm out. And yet, this is what it says in Scripture. It says, where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Not the words that Hagar had in mind. I will increase your descendants, and they will be too numerous to count. Before Hagar's able to come up with the excuses, but, 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 the angel of God says, I'm going to take care of it. Every single one of Hagar's questions in these next few moments, every one of her excuses, everything, God meets her at every single one of those and stops her in her tracks. This is a God who gets me, who understands where I've been says this, the angel of the Lord said to her, you are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, which means the Lord hears. For the Lord had mercy, had, 
has heard of your misery. He gets me. He will be a wild donkey of a man. Not the words that any parent wants to hear about their kid. <laughs> Not really good news, but kind of like sticking it to the man. So <laughs> he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone. Okay, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all of his brothers. Not excessively good news, but okay. So he's going to be able to hold his own. Where we're headed back to, it's not going to eat him alive. Where we're headed back to, people are going to hear him and respect him. And I'm going to live because my descendants are going to be many. There is protection and hope and all kinds of things wrapped up into that in their culture. And so she says, okay. But before she goes, she says, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Ber Lahai Roy. El Royai means the God who sees me. It's still named that. The God who sees me. The God who gets me where I am and sees to the very core of who I am. If we step back for a moment and we think, what was it that God saw in her? What was it, this is the God who sees me. What did he see besides the puffy ankles and this girl who was running and afraid? What did he see? He saw desperation and isolation. He saw a girl longing to be understood and respected, who was willing to take her place in the midst of a messy situation. A girl who missed her family, who had big questions, who desired to be known and saw and loved. This God who saw her didn't just love her. He even liked her. This is a God who saw her to the very core of who she was and didn't run. If we step back and think of God seeing you, if you were to say you are the God who sees me, what would he, say, what would he see? What do you hope that he sees in you? What do you hope that's there. You're the God who sees me in my grief and in my frustration and in my questions and in my disappointment and my anger towards you. You're the God who sees me in my brokenness and my dreams. The God who sees a heart longing to follow and serve him. The God who sees you hoping to find truth in the midst of the chaos. 
the God who sees the potential in you of what life can be like if you lean in to trusting him. What happens to our relationships if we have a God who sees us and we realize that we follow a God who sees everyone else too? That those other people are made in the image of God too. That God sees them and he sees us. It changes the relationships. It changes the way I want to live and orient myself towards other people. It changes the way I want to enter into those things, enter into their story, that I don't go into it alone anymore. I go into it with God into those places. Just as Hagar is going to do, she's going to leave the desert and go back to a messy situation. And this is not the only time that she will find herself in the desert. It happens again that she will find herself in that desert, that things do not play out the way that she thought they would. But she has a God who sees her and walks with her and weeps with her and rejoices and parties with her. You have a God who sees you, who rejoices with you, who weeps with you and walks with you into those hard things if we invite him in to our lives. But God already sees you. There's nothing hidden from him. And it's a good thing that he sees us, that he walks with us without judgment. 2 Corinthians, there's a guy named Paul who God sees as well. In 2 Corinthians, there's a part in 2 Corinthians 4 that says this. It says, Our lives filled up with light as we saw and understood God in the face of Christ. All bright and beautiful. But we have these treasures in jars of clay. (laughs) Unadorned pots, as the message calls it to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but do not, not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around the body, in our body, the death of Jesus, so that life of Jesus may be revealed in us. He lives. It says just a little bit later, in that same chapter, it says, therefore we do not lose heart. We're not giving up. Though outwardly, it looks like things are falling apart on us. On the inside, where God is making new life, not a day goes by without his unfolding grace, Scripture says. We are renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. This is small potatoes compared to what's coming. There's far more here than meets the eye. So we fix our eyes 
on what is unseen. Not on what is seen. Because this is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. And so we have a God who sees us, and we get to fix our eyes on him as we relate and as we have relationships with others. Hagar finds that to be true as well. And as, we, as you explore your story and as you look at what God is going to do, those stories are not always easy. But they're good when God's involved. We're going to take communion here in a minute, but I'd love to pray for you before we do. God, we find ourselves in the desert. There is dried up plants all around. The sun scorching is so hot, God. And we need a touch from you. We so long to be seen by you, fully seen and known by you, undone by your reckless love that has no boundaries and no buts. There is no end to your love for us, God. Thank you that you meet us in the middle of our mess and that you lead us into a beautiful future because we are walking with you and the end, in the end you win. So God, today I pray that we can surrender our stuff, our anger and our opposition to you, our distance, our running away from you, God are blaming you. But God, I thank you that you're big enough for our questions and big enough for the stuff that doesn't make sense and the stuff that's not fair, God. Thank you. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins and for your Holy Spirit to fill us so that we can go into situations and have your strength instead of ours. God, I pray for those desert situations right now, those relationships that are so painful and hard in this place. God, I pray that you touch those places with your light and with your hope. I pray that there just be the inkling of desire to want to forgive. God, that you are healing broken pieces of us so that our lives can reflect fract and reflect your light into the world. So God, do your healing work even now. May this be a day when we surrender our stuff and say, God, you are my God who sees me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Amen.